Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? So today we're going to be breaking down the first Democratic debates of 2019. And this is the first night, so June 26th, in which the candidates were being introduced. And on the first night, they had several candidates. Basically, there's 20 in the debates total, and the first night was 10. So we're going to hear Cory Booker, Julian Castro, de Blasio, Delaney, Gabbard, Inslee, all of these different types of candidates. Beto O'Rourke is there, Tim Ryan, Elizabeth Warren, and Amy Klobuchar. And what I want you to notice in these different parts of the debates, one of the things that really stood out to me as I was listening to it and Alex as he was listening to it, was that the moderators in this debate um, really frame the questions as though they have an interest or stake in it. You know, the the moderators are really asking a question in a very pointed way and getting into the emotion of the moment. And so in our first clip here, we're going to be hearing from Jose Diaz-Balart. And this is the moderator, and he's going to be talking about these undocumented children. And this is a question to the candidates, but listen to how he frames it. Now, this is a longer clip that we're going to be listening to because a lot of the candidates are going to respond. It's about nine minutes long. So just hang in there. If you don't want to listen to the whole clip, just fast forward you know, through it. We're going to be breaking it down to the end. And let's go ahead and take a listen to this part here and just listen to how he gets into the emotion of the moment. I want to turn to an issue that has been in the news, especially this week. There are undocumented children being held alone in detention, even as close as Homestead, Florida, right here, less than 30 miles from where we are tonight. Fathers and mothers and children are dying while trying to enter the United States of America. We saw that image today that broke our hearts, and they had names. Oscar Martinez and his 23-month-old daughter Valeria died trying to cross the river to ask for asylum in this country. Last month, more than 130,000 migrants were apprehended at the southern border. Secretary Castro, if you were president today, oi, what would you specifically do? Thank you very much, uh, Jose. I'm very proud that in April I became the first candidate to put forward a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those images. <laughs> Watching that image of, of Oscar and his daughter Valeria uh, is heartbreaking. It should also piss us all off. If I were president today, and it should spur us to action, if I were president today, I would sign an executive order that would get rid of Trump's zero tolerance policy, the remain in Mexico policy, and the metering policy. This metering policy is basically 
what prompted Oscar and Valeria to make that risky swim across the river. They have been playing games with people who are coming and trying to seek asylum at our ports of entry. Oscar and Valeria went to a port of entry and then they were denied the ability to make an asylum claim. So they got frustrated and they tried to cross the river and they died because of that. On day one, sorry. On day I'm one, just ask I would do that seconds. executive order that would address metering and then I would follow that up in my first 100 days with immigration reform that would honor asylum claims that would put undocumented immigrants as long as they haven't committed a serious crime on a pathway to citizenship and that would go to the root cause of the issue, which is we need a Marshall Plan for Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador so that people can find safety and opportunity at home instead of coming to the United States to seek it. Senator Booker, what would you do on day one? And this is a situation that the next president will inherit. La situación ahora es inaceptable. Este presidente ha atacado, ha demonizado los inmigrantes. Es inaceptable y voy a cambiar este. On day one, I will make sure that number one, we end the ICE policies and the customs and border policies that are violating the human rights. When people come to their, this country, they do not leave their human rights at the border. Number two, I will make sure that we reinstate DACA, that we reinstate pathways to citizenship for DACA recipients and to make sure that people that are here on temporary protected status can stay and remain here. And then finally, we need to make sure that we address the issues that made Oscar and Valeria come in the first place by making major investments in the Northern Triangle, not like this president is doing, by ripping away the resources we need to actually solve this problem. We cannot surrender our values and think that we're going to get border security. We actually will lose security and our values. We must fight for both. Well, see, if, I might, if I might, very briefly, and this is an important point, you know, my plan, and I'm glad to see that Senator Booker, Senator Warren, and Governor Inslee agree with me on this, my plan also includes getting rid of, rid of Section 1325 of the Immigration and Nationality Act to go back to the way we used to treat this when somebody comes across the border, not to criminalize desperation, to treat that as a civil violation. And, and here's why it's important. We see all of this horrendous family separation. They use that law, Section 1325, to justify under the law separating little Thank children you. from their families. Jose, and so I want to challenge just, every single candidate on this stage to support the repeal of Section 1325. Jose, my, my, 30 I, seconds. I, I, as my friend here said, I agree with him on that issue, but folks should understand that the separation of children from families doesn't just go on at our border. It happens in our communities as ICE are ripping away parents from their American children, spouses and the like, and are creating fear in cities all across this country where parents are afraid to even drop their kids off to school or go to work. We but must Jose, end we those policies as well. We have discussion about immigration Mayor. in this country because look at the bottom line here. Those tragic, that tragic photo of those that parent, that child, and I'm saying this as a father, every American should feel that in their heart and every American should say that is not America, those are not our values, but we have to get under the skin of why we have this crisis in our system because we're not being honest about the division that's been fomented in this country, the way that American citizens have been told that immigrants somehow created their misery and their pain and their challenges. For all the American citizens out there who feel you're falling behind, who feel the American dream's not working for you, the immigrants didn't do that to you. The big corporations did that to you. The 1% did that to you. 
We need to be the party of working people, and that includes a party of immigrants. But first, we have to tell working people in America who are hurting that we're going to be on their side every single time against those big corporations who created this mess to begin with. And remind people we're all in this together. If we don't change that debate, that politics that's holding us back, we won't get all these reforms people are talking about. That's what Thank we you. need to do as Democrats. Congresista O'Rourke. ¿Qué haría usted en el primer día, si usted es presidente, sobre esta realidad que está ocurriendo? What would you do, Congressman, day one at the White House? Vamos a tratar cada persona con el respeto y dignidad que merecen como humanos. We would not turn back Valeria and her father, Oscar. We would accept them into this country and follow our own asylum laws. We would not build walls. We would not put kids in cages. In fact, we would spare well, no expense to reunite the families a lot of that have been families. separated already. And we would not criminally would prosecute any family because who is fleeing violence for the repeal and of persecution. We would make sure... Secretary, let him finish, and I will give you... His policy uh, but let him finish. Let him finish, please. Yes. We would not detain any family fleeing violence, in fact, fleeing the deadliest countries on the face of the planet today. We would implement a family case management program so they could be cared for in the community at a fraction of the cost. And then we would rewrite our immigration laws in our own image. Free dreamers forever from any fear of deportation by making them U.S. citizens here in this country. Invest in solutions in Central America. Work with regional stakeholders so there's no reason to make Thank that 2,000-mile journey to But this country. Secretary, I'll give you 30 seconds. Let's be very clear. The reason that they're separating these little children from their families is that they're using Section 1325 of that act, which criminalizes coming across the border, to incarcerate the, the parents and then separate them. Some of us on this stage have called to end that section, to terminate it. Some, like Congressman O'Rourke, have not. And I want to challenge all of the candidates In to fact. do that. I just think it's a mistake, Bethel. I think it's a mistake. And I think that, that if you truly want to change the system, then we got to repeal that section. If not, Thank you. then it so might as well be the same policy. Let, let me, let me respond to this very briefly. Since Actually, as a member of Congress, I helped to introduce legislation that would ensure that we don't criminalize those who are seeking asylum and refuge I'm in this country. If you're about, fleeing, if you're fleeing desperation, asylum, then I'm I want to make about, sure, I'm I want to make sure that you're treated else. with respect. I'm still talking about everybody but, else. But you're looking at just one small part of this. I'm talking about a comprehensive rewrite of our immigration that's laws. That's not true. And if we do that, that's I don't think not, it's asking that's too much not for true. people I'm to talking follow about, our laws when they come to this country. A lot of folks that are coming are not seeking asylum. A lot of them are undocumented immigrants, right? And you said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what, Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21 and Title 22 already cover If human trafficking. This is a no smuggler I think that you should do your homework on this issue. If you did your homework on this issue, you would know that we should repeal this section. This is an issue about? that we should and could be talking about for a long time, and we will for a long time. Can we talk about the conditions to why people are coming here? Let's let Lester, Savannah, sorry, Savannah. I know, it's just, we could go on. But rather than talking about specific provisions, we really have to talk about why these people are coming to our country. Chance. And what are we going to do to actually make a difference in these countries? Congressman, you'll get your chance. Let's continue the discussion. And here we're out with the first question uh, of the episode here. We're talking about this moderator asking the question way back at the beginning there. 
like a movie narrator, almost telling a an epic tale of people crossing the border and, and really leaning in and using his voice into that. And, um, you know, it really begs the question of exactly, you know, maybe how nonpartisan are these moderators or, you know, are they playing to the audience of the Democratic Party? It's really interesting to see sort of the dynamic go on there. And the idea as well that like the questions that they're asking have a certain turn, a certain spin to them, um, you know, as Taylor pointed out right before uh, that question there. The moderator in this is definitely making this a certain way. He wants to create a certain momentum with this. And he wants for anyone who is talking about this to confirm what it is that he's already said. And, you know, probably any Democrat would be willing to do that. Um, But what you don't hear is a lot of more um, moderate stances here, you know, about the immigration debate, right? You're hearing things that people would think of as common sense. But the way that that question is being phrased, it's already been persuasively selected for a certain type of response. And as we hear here him talking about, you know, Julian, if you were president today, oi, what would you do? You know, oi means today in Spanish. What would you do? And then he says, you know, thank you for this question. And I'm the only one who has created a comprehensive immigration plan. And we saw those pictures. So what happens a lot and what is happening a lot in this debate is that you'll hear each politician bringing us down to that level of emotion and feeling through specifics, right? So through specifics. So if you had seen that picture on the internet or if you saw it on a news show, then it's like we saw that picture. If you didn't see it, then you want to know which picture it is so that you can go and look it up. And, you know, we saw that picture and here's what we saw in that picture. And then they're talking about this this photo. And then we hear, like, for example, de Blasio come in and he says, you know, that tragic photo. And he says, I'm speaking as a father. And this is something that you continue to hear. It's as though him being a father, Julian Castro being the Latin guy, Beto living in Texas, like that has more substance to the issue than what they have to say in their policy decisions. And so this is this type of identity politics that you hear going through. And naturally, you hear each person really emphasizing that in each response in which they're giving. Now, there's a couple of speaking tactics they use here um, in this first example that I think really illustrate, you know, some some finer points of persuasion. So if we listen to Booker's response, he begins with, you know, a typical um, sort of like numbering one, two and so on. But the way that he does it is he goes off, you know, first thing I'm going to do, number one, and he lists off all the things he's going to do first. Then then he jumps into number two, we need to solve this, X, Y, and Z. And then instead of going to three for his third point, he says, finally. But he says, finally, in a very exasperated voice, as if it's, you know, finally, we're solving this issue. Finally, we're getting this completed. It's about time that we're doing the things that I'm saying. He sort of leans into that and embodies the voice of exhaustion and, you know, obviousness of this policy. And why haven't we done this already? You know, we should have been, you know, solving issues my way forever. Um, And so it's sort of a subtle way that he uses his voice to, you know, influence or persuade. Take a look then at uh, what de Blasio does 
is he sort of tries, you know, the poor man's version of that um, by really leaning into the, the, the language that he's using as well. But I don't know, it doesn't really come off persuasive or genuine until he gets to the end where he starts talking about how immigrants coming here to this country, um, they are not causing your problems. You didn't lose your job because of them. They didn't do that to you, he says. And then he says the businesses, it's the businesses that did that to you. And so it's this is his way of sort of taking, you know, those issues that a lot of Americans, especially in like Iowa, complain about and, you know, are experiencing every single day and then re-spin that back toward, you know, we need to be fighting big business and big corporations and not the immigrants, which is, you know, a little bit more toward the moderate to, you know, Republican group that you might persuade with that kind of an argument because, you know, it's preaching to the choir to a Democratic audience. So it's a little interesting to see him use that in this kind of a debate. And then finally, I really like how Julian starts citing, you know, legal code numbers and, you know, that it's, you know, uh, this code in the Immigration Act um, and keeps on repeating that over and over and over again and challenges the other uh, opponents to engage on that as well as sort of a way for him to confuse the other candidates because, you know, I guarantee you not everybody on that stage knew exactly what he was talking about and can cite, you know, the 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 numbers of the different, you know, parts of the Immigration Act and, uh, and, and, and agree with them and know exactly what they're saying. So he's sort of using that as a confusion tactic to then say that I know more about this issue than all of you because you don't know about this one thing that I'm talking about that's very specific. And, you know, he may have a very good point, but at the, uh, at the same time, it, it's sort of interesting to see the other uh, candidates sort of try to wrangle and maneuver around that. Yeah, he keeps repeating it over and over as Beto's trying to talk. And, you know, Beto is going into his classic, you know, big picture, kind of thematic way of talking. And Julian Castro just keeps saying the number, but you're not this and you're not that. And one other thing that I found really interesting here about this is how um, Beto and Julian get into these kind of scope wars about who can chunk up higher than the other one. So, you know, Beto says, you know, but you're looking at one small part of this, like, you know, one small part of the legislation. I'm looking at total immigration reform. So you see what he does there. He takes everything that Julian just said and he says, yeah, but what you just said is one little tiny detail, right? You're missing the forest for the trees. Okay, you what I'm talking about, my plan is about something much bigger, total immigration reform. Right. And then, you know, what happens is, is that Julian Castro comes back to him and says, no, I'm talking about the millions of people out there. You see, so they get into this thing of who can be higher. Okay, who can talk about more at the same time? But I thought that was really interesting how Beto actually diffuses what Julian said and his criticism of him by basically chunking up and becoming more global. And the way that Beto really ends this really struck me, too, is that after that scope war that you're talking about, he sort of ends his whole thing with we need to rewrite the immigration laws in our own image, which is really powerful, especially if you're maybe a more of a spiritual person. What he's doing here is, of course, calling back to, you know, God and and how, you know, God created man in his own image. 
I don't know if he's equating himself uh, at to God or invoking that. But at a minimum, what he's doing is he's saying that, you know, we as a people need to be more godly, treating others as we might be treated ourselves and, you know, treating you know, immigrants the way that we want to be treated ourselves. And so it's sort of interesting how he how he uses that little language play there at the end. Yeah, definitely. It's like he he recognizes something that people will value and then he's he's associating everything that he just said to that value. You know, referencing spirituality or religion in that way can be really powerful. We're actually going to be hearing later on in this episode a part where Cory Booker is talking about and he actually directly quotes the Bible um, and in doing a really powerful reframe uh, that we're going to be hearing a little bit later on. Now, in this next clip, uh, we're going to fast forward a little bit later in the episode to a little bit later in the debate to when they're talking about Iran and what's happening. I'm just going to tell you the question that the uh, moderator, I think it's Lester Holt, says uh, he says, who here would sign on to the 2015 nuclear deal as it was originally negotiated? And as you're listening to this clip, what actually happened was is that all hands went up on the stage except for Cory Booker. So just listen to that and then you'll know why they selected Cory Booker to, to talk here. So let's take a listen to this clip. We mean, we're, going, we're, we're going to talk about Iran right now because we're working against the clock. Tankers have been attacked. A U.S. drone has been shot down. There have been disturbing threats issued by both the U.S. and Iranian leadership. I'd like, if you can, just for a moment, to put aside how you think we may have gotten here. But what I want to know is how do you dial it back? So a show of hands, who as president would sign on to the 2015 nuclear deal as it was originally negotiated? That's it. Cory Bush, Senator Booker, why not? May I address that? First and foremost, it was a mistake to pull out of that deal. And one of the reasons why we're seeing this hostility now is because Donald Trump is marching us to a far more dangerous situation. Literally, he took us out of a deal that gave us transparency into their nuclear program and pushed back a nuclear breakout 10, 20 years. And now we see Iran threatening to go further and we're pull, being pulled in further and further into this crisis. We need to renegotiate and get back into a deal, but I'm not going to have a primary platform to say unilaterally I'm going to rejoin that deal because when I am president of the United States, I'm going to do the best I can to secure this country and that region and make sure that if I have an opportunity to leverage a better deal, I'm going to do it. All right. Senator Klobuchar, I'd like you to that's answer that question because you've said, you said you, treaty, you would negotiate yourself back into the Iranian agreement. Can you argue that that nuclear pact, as it was ratified, was a good deal? Yes, it was. It was imperfect, uh, but it was a good deal for that moment. I would have worked to get longer sunset periods, and that's something we could negotiate uh, to get back in the deal. But the point is, Donald Trump told us when he got out of it that he was going to give us a better deal. Those were his words. And now we are a month away from the Iranians who claim now that they're going to blow the caps on enriching uh, uranium. And the Iranians have told us this. And so that's where we are right now. He has made us less safe than we were when he became president. So what I would do is negotiate us back into that agreement, is stand with our allies and not give unlimited leverage to China and Russia, which is what he has done. And then, finally, I would make sure that if there is any possibility of a conflict, and we're having this debate in Congress right now, that he comes to Congress for an authorization of military force. I would do that. Um, um, and this president is literally every single day, 10 minutes away from going to war, 
one tweet away from going to war, and I don't think All we right. should conduct foreign policy in our bathrobe at five Con in the Congress morning. Congresswoman Gabbard, you've said you've said you would you would sign back onto the 2015 deal. Would you would you insist though that it address Iran's support for Hezbollah? Uh, let's deal with the situation where we are where this president and his chicken hawk cabinet have led us to the brink of war with Iran. I served in the war in Iraq at the height of the war in 2005, a war that took over 4,000 of my brothers and sisters in uniforms lives. The American people need to understand that this war with Iran would be far more devastating far more costly than anything that we ever saw in Iraq. It would take many more lives. It would exacerbate the refugee crisis. And it wouldn't be just contained within Iran. This would turn into a regional war. This is why it's so important that every one of us, every single American, stand up and say, no war with Iran. We need to get back into the Iran nuclear agreement. And we need to negotiate how we can improve it. It was an imperfect deal. There are issues like their missile, their missile development that needs to be addressed, we can do both simultaneously to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon you, and preventing us from going to war. time is up. I have just a very quick follow-up. Well, what would your red line be that would, that for military action against Iran? Look, obviously, if there was an attack against the American, uh, our troops, then there would have to be a response. But my point is, and it's important for us to recognize this, is Donald Trump and his cabinet, Mike Pompeo, John Bolton, and others, are creating a situation that just a spark would light off a war with Iran, which is incredibly dangerous. That's why we need to de-escalate tensions. Trump needs to get back into the Iran nuclear deal and swallow his pride. Put the American people first. Hey, but wait a minute. All right, we are out of time. We're up against a hard all right, so what we hear in this clip is that Cory Booker bought himself a chance to speak because everyone raises their hand except for him. And when he doesn't raise his hand, of course, then it's like, well, why? And then he goes into, well, actually, I really liked the deal. <laughs> and actually, I think pulling out of it was a mistake. But I wouldn't, you know, be forced into, you know, doing the deal. And basically, he says nothing. All right. It's like, well, I would basically do something about the same, but I wouldn't commit to, you know, getting back into the deal. Um, but I think that was an interesting tactic that he used to basically buy himself a moment there to speak. And he could have, you know, spoke even longer about that um, and maybe even buy himself some headlines. You know, Cory Booker didn't raise his hand. Why didn't Cory raise his hand? Oh, let's ask him about that. It becomes a little bit more of a dramatic thing that he's now able to to tap into. And we heard some, you know, interesting language here like Amy Klobuchar, you know, we shouldn't conduct foreign policy in our bathrobe at five in the four in the morning or five in the morning. Um, that's obviously <laughs> something in which, you know, she had, you know, brought in and practiced a little bit. Um, but the interesting thing about this clip was the question that was directed to Tulsi Gabbard. And what I want you to notice about this questioning is that it was actually a veiled question asking her about her policy specifically to Israel. So when they were asking her, would you insist that it address Iran's support for Hezbollah? Like, let's understand that that's a question about Israel, right? Hezbollah being a terrorist organization that is threatening primarily Israel. And then later on, when they ask her, well, what would your red line be? 
that's referencing this this talk that um, Israel's prime minister, you know, Netanyahu did, where Netanyahu said, "Here's our red line for Iran becoming nuclear before we actually attack and preemptively strike." Um, so this was something where that was the subtext in which she was, you know, being being asked about this. Which again, it's the moderators asking questions, framing things in a particular way in order to get some responses that. Even at the surface, you might not really understand what it is unless you understand the context of it. And, you know, Gabbard here, she talks about this president and his and she really emphasizes the word chicken hawk cabinet. Right. So chicken hawk, you know, that's the person who is in support of, you know, war but hasn't served. And so we hear these very subtle calls within language of. A person says a word and it has multiple meanings that are not, you know, necessarily, you know, attacked. And, you know, also what we hear, of course, here from Gabbard is just her her spin, you know, how, how she spins the whole thing. Yeah, it's really funny to see the way that they try to outdo themselves with like insulting Trump. Uh, we start off with Cory Booker. Right. And like Taylor said, he doesn't really say very much. But what he does do, he doesn't say what he's going to do. He says what he's not going to do. And so he goes on and on and on about all the things that he would not do. But, you know, my question would be, well, then what are you going to do? Um, And so uh, coincidentally, all the things that he's not going to do are the things that Trump did. Then we get to Klobuchar and then she gets in this nice little quip and she says, you know, I'm not going to change policy. It's not time for us to change policy in our bathrobes, you know, almost as if. Uh, that picture of Trump uh, that might arise in your mind of him in, you know, his bathrobe at 7 a.m. deciding, you know what, we're going to bomb Iran. You know, I think a lot of Americans have read news stories about Trump and, you know, how he likes his Diet Coke uh, and other things like that. And um, and I think a lot of liberals uh, might envision him as being lazy on the decision making. And so this sort of plays into that in you know a very demeaning and derogatory way uh that you place to the liberal base um and really sort of just like that pokes that eye at at donald trump that um you know sort of serves to outdo cory booker and then we get tulsi gabbard who you know just starts right out with that chicken hawk cabinet remark um sort of going even further and and uh and, and insulting trump and his you know, uh, his staff. But what does she do? She contrasts it with her own service because what she doesn't really highlight there is the fact that she herself served and knows the cost of war and, you know, just, you know, finds every moment to point that out in all of her speaking moments. And so I think that, you know, I don't know what utility that will serve in a Democratic primary because I'm not sure if that's that persuasive to Democrats. But what it is uh, is it contrasts her with the other candidates on the stage who also have not served. Yeah, and I think that, you know, it, it will, of course, appeal to moderates, right? So it's going to appeal to those people who are moderate within the Democratic Party who, you know, do appreciate their, who do have that, that support for, for veterans. Um, so on this next clip, as we're going to be listening to it, we're going to hear Chuck Todd um, ask a question about guns. Now, what happened during this clip is that they were having some technical difficulties with their 
their microphones. And actually, the first way that he phrased this was actually the most persuasive. So I'm just going to read it here for you so that you can take it into context. Um, he said, we are less than 50 miles from Heartland, Florida, where we found this and where we found this. And many people are calling for, you know, gun reform. But and then he began to go into the question. And then they were having trouble with their mics. And so he said it again. And then he looked down at his paper. And for me, this is like he's revealing all of his good stuff, you know, all of his notes. And he looked down at his paper and he said, um, gun activism has become a big part of high school life. Okay, now let's, you know, what does he mean, you know, by that? Um, so let's take a uh, listen to how he actually phrases it toward the end as he directs this question to Elizabeth Warren. Um, but it is interesting. Just know that this is his third take of how he actually says it. Let's take listen to it. Senator Warren, uh, we're going to get to the uh, gun question here. Parkland, Florida, it's just north of here in Broward County. As you know, it has created a lot of teenage activism uh, on the gun issue. Uh, It has inspired a lot of you to come out with more robust plans to deal with guns, including assault weapons ban. But even if you're able to implement that, what do you do about the hundreds of millions of guns already out there And does the federal government have to play a role in dealing with it? So um, in this period of time that I've been running for president, I've had more than 100 town halls. I've taken more than 2,000 unfiltered questions. And the single hardest question I've gotten, I got one from a little boy and I got one from a little girl. And that is to say, when you're president, how are you going to keep us safe? That's our responsibility as adults. Seven children will die today from gun violence, children and teenagers. And they won't just die in mass shootings. They'll die on sidewalks, they'll die in playgrounds, they'll die in people's backyards. Gun violence is a national health emergency in this country, and we need to treat it like that. So what can we do? We can do the things that are sensible. We can do the universal background checks. We can ban the weapons of war. But we can also double down on the research and find out what really works, where it is that we can make the differences at the margins that will keep our children safe. We need to treat this like the virus that's killing our children. Uh, You didn't address, do you you think the federal government needs to go and figure out a way to get the guns that are already out there? What I think we need to do is we need to treat it like a serious research problem, which we have not done. You know, guns in the hands of a collector who's had them for decades, who's never fired them, who takes safety seriously, that's very different from guns that are sold and turned over quickly. We can't treat this as an across-the-board problem. We have to treat it like a public health emergency. That means bring data to bear, and it means make real change in this country, whether it's politically popular or not. Senator Booker, you have a program. fight for our children. Senator Booker, you have a federal government buyback program uh, in your plan. How is that going to work? Well, first of all, I want to say my colleague and I both have been hearing this on the campaign trail. But what's even worse is I hear gunshots in my neighborhood. I think I'm the only one. I hope I'm the only one on this panel here that had seven people shot in their neighborhood just last week. Someone I knew, Shahad Smith, was killed with an assault rifle at the top of my block last year. For millions of Americans, this is not a policy issue. This is an urgency. And for those who have not been directly affected, they're tired of living in a country where their kids go to school to learn about reading, writing, and arithmetic, and 
how to deal with an active shooter in their school. This is something that I'm tired of, and I'm tired of hearing people, all they have to offer is thoughts and prayers. In my faith, people say faith without works is dead. So we will find a way, but the reason we have a problem right now is we've let the, the corporate gun lobby frame this debate. It is time that we have bold actions and a bold agenda. I will get that done as President of the United States because this is not about policy, this is personal. Thank you, Senator Booker. Secretary Castro, I'd like to talk to you about something that Sec Senator Booker just mentioned there, the idea of active shooter drills in schools. As school shootings seem like an almost every day or every week occurrence now, they don't make a complete news cycle anymore, no matter the death toll. As parents are so afraid as their kids go off to school that their kids will be caught up in something like this, next to nothing has changed in federal law that might affect the prevalence of school shootings. Is this a problem that is going to continue to get worse over our lifetimes? Or is there something that you would do as president that you really think would turn it around? Yeah, Rachel, I, uh, I'm the dad of a 10-year-old girl, Karina, who's here tonight. And the worst thing is knowing that your child might be worried about what could happen at school, a place that's supposed to be safe. The answer to your question is no. We don't have to accept that. And I believe that on January 20th, 2021, at 12.01 p.m., we're going to have a Democratic president, a Democratic House, and a Democratic Senate. So here we hear some really interesting tactics used by some of the candidates. We start with, with Elizabeth Warren really here digging in, and she uses this alliteration where she starts with, you know, they'll die you know, in the streets, they'll die in their schools, our children will die here, they'll die there. And she does this, you know, sort of, she does it three times to sort of illustrate exactly, you know, how powerful and how, you know, bad that is, but in an, yeah, in an alliterative way. And then she gets to this one really interesting point where she says, we need to treat this like the virus that's killing our children, that it, that it is. And it's a different way to look at it that a lot of the other candidates aren't. Um, and it's a way for her to emphasize that she is the person with the plan because she goes into talking about how we need to bring data to bear in this situation and we need to be studying these things because she is, you know, the erudite scholar of the group, the one that's, you know, trying to appeal to our rationality and our thoughts um, in addition to our feelings. And, you know, I really find it interesting because, you know, is this a way to, you know, get to people's heart and minds that they'll that that's saying that, you know, they'll die here, they'll die there, they'll die in that other place. We need to bring data to bear. Uh, we need to treat this like a virus. Uh, and you contrast that with Cory Booker, who in his speech sort of just talked about all of the emotional stuff. If you listen, he doesn't really say any specific piece of policy or anything that he wants to do to actually stop any of this. What he talks about is, you know, his neighborhood. And you'll hear him throughout the entire debate if you watch the, the whole thing. He brings it back to his neighborhood over and over and over again and talks about how, you know, this this child was shot in his neighborhood and how he hopes that nobody else ever has to deal with that either. And he's really speaking to, you know, that feeling, that emotional situation and, you know, how there are other millions of Americans around the country who, you know, feel the same way that he does in his neighborhood and that nobody else should have to deal with that. 
He doesn't say what he's going to do or what should be done. He's just talking to the feeling. So that's a that's a big contrast from Elizabeth Warren, who tries to do the the feeling part and then jumps into, well, now we need to think about this issue and we need to plan and we need to study this and defeat it like, you know, a medical virus. How she goes into this and how she starts to answer it um, right at the very beginning, you know, we're really getting a course on how to spend and how to not answer questions here through these debates, because, you know, the moderator asks, well, Elizabeth Warren, what would you do about going and taking people's guns or, you know, going and getting the guns back? How exactly are you going to do that? And she says, so. And then she says, I've been on a hundred town halls i've done this many stops and it's like wait a second wait a second reality starting to blur a little bit here i thought he was asking you a question about would you get the guns back why are we now talking about your record in how you have made this many stops or talked to this many people and among the hardest questions i've had to you know be asked there was a little boy and a little girl Now we're like, you know, now we're going into this innocence of childhood, you know, this sense of, well, this is what happened. And this was the the down home story. And this is how it happened, you know, there in Oklahoma. And, you know, that little girl and little boy just asked me a question, you know, how are you going to keep us safe? And it's it's so simple that these types of really simple messages oftentimes will appeal to a broad base of people. It's like, what do they remember? Well, it's just about keeping us safe. So, you know, Trump has the thing of the immigrants are going to come in and they're going to, you know, do all these really bad things. And um, that's going to be unsafe. And so we have to build the wall. And now we hear Warren doing a similar tactic, which is, well, now I'm going to use this whole safety thing to build off and talk about, you know, the guns. And as she starts to go into it, right, then she goes into her facts. We can do this. We can do that. You know, the universal background checks. We can ban the, and listen to this phrase, the weapons of war. This is a Democratic talking point. They clearly rehearsed how to say that because multiple candidates said the same thing, the weapons of war. But we can also double down on the research. And then they come back to her and said, that's great what you said. But you didn't really answer our question. How would you do this? And I think that what we need to do is the research. And then they go, okay. And then she keeps talking. And she says, well, well, we need real change in this country. Whether it's politically popular or not, we fight for our children. And so it's back to that emotion of the children and what we're talking about with the children, not about the actual actual issue. And, you know, I, I I agree with everything that Alex just said. Um, about, you know, what, uh, Booker, you know, said, I just wanted to add a couple of things, little language things he did here. Um, it was interesting. He said this thing about they're tired of going to school, learning about reading, writing, arithmetic, and active shooter drills, you know, practicing how to respond to that. Um, that's, that's a little bit of a, a play on repetition. It's like you expect it, you expect it, you expect it. And then all of a sudden he flips it around to something else. And then we hear that that Bible quote, you know, I'm tired of thoughts and prayers. In my faith, people say faith without works is dead. Now, that's a Bible quote. So what he's doing is he's dismissing this criticisms that others have had, that faith, you know, thoughts and prayers. And that's been a, you know, largely Democratic thing for a while. It's like Republicans keep saying thoughts and prayers. That's not enough. 
But how Booker does it here is especially impactful, which is that he connects it to him being a person of faith. And it brings it into, this is what people say where he is from, what they see in his church, and now it's Corey's the same as us. So he gets it. He understands what we're talking about. So therefore, he can, you know, then criticize it. And so in this next one, we'll get to hear, you know, a question on race. And the moderator is going to ask, what have you done for black and Latino voters that should enthuse them? And it's interesting because, of course, she asks it to the uh, non-black or Latino candidate. Let me put this to you on the issue of civil rights for decades um, on the issue of civil rights and demographics, honestly, and politics. For decades, the Democratic Party has counted on African-American voter turnout as step one to winning elections on a national level. Democrats are counting on the Latino community now and in the future in the same way. What have you done for black and Latino voters that should enthuse them about going to the polls for you if you're your party's nominee? My life and my career and my work in the Senate has been about economic opportunity. And to me, this means better childcare uh, for everyone in this country. And when you want to have an economy that works, you need to have retirement that works. You need to have public schools that work. And you also need to make sure that, that those communities are able to get those jobs of the future, the STEM jobs. In fact, Donald Trump, one of the first bills that he signed, of the 34 he signed where I was the lead Democrat, okay, that's a first up here, um, uh, was one that was about that, making sure minority community members um, could share in those jobs. So to me, uh, this is about a few things. It's about an African-American woman that goes to a hospital in New Orleans, says her hands are swollen, and then doctor ignores her and her baby dies. It's about uh, the fact that African-American women make 61 cents for every dollar a white man makes. So in short, we need to, one, and I will do this in my first 100 days as president, we will work to make sure everyone can vote at this table. Everyone can vote in this country. That's and we will also go to the next step of criminal justice reform. Senator Booker and I worked on that first step act, but we should go to the second step act, uh, which is to help all our communities across. Senator, the thank you very much. 30 second follow up to you, uh, Secretary Castro. This is a 70% Latino city here in Miami. You are the only Latino Democrat who is running this year in the presidential race. Is that enough? of an answer. What Senator Klobuchar is describing there, an economic justice agenda, is that enough to mobilize Latino voters to stand with the Democratic Party in a big way? Uh, well, I also think that we have to recognize racial and social justice. And, you know, I was in Charleston not too long ago, and I remembered that uh, Dylan Roof went to the Mother Emanuel AME Church, and he murdered nine people who were worshiping, and then he was apprehended by police without incident. Well, but what about Eric Garner and Tamir Rice? and Laquan McDonald, and Sandra Bland, and Pamela Turner, and Antonio Arce. I'm proud that I'm the only candidate so far that has put forward legislation that would reform our policing system in America and make sure that no matter what the color of your skin is, that you're treated the same, including Latinos who are mistreated too oftentimes by police. Secretary Castro, thank you. So yeah, we hear here this question that, as Alex said, is directed to the you know, white person in the audience. Okay, what have you done for black and Latino voters that should enthuse them? And Amy Klobuchar goes into um, this idea of economics, right? And which is interesting because it feels like she wasn't very prepared for this question. Like it was something that caught her a little bit off balance, or perhaps that was one of her weak spots. And so she started talking about the economy. And 
she talked about, you know, the African-American woman who goes to the hospital and her hands are swollen and you know she can't get, you know, um, medical care for that. It's about the, you know, 61 cents on the dollar. Like, you know, these, these are things obviously that she has rehearsed, but it didn't seem like it was quite good enough of an answer. And that left a little bit of a gap there that then when they turned to Julian Castro and he doesn't run with it too hard, which again would be a mistake. He actually goes with what that um, person actually says. And he says, well, we also need to recognize racial and social justice. And I remember when, and then he goes into stories and then he says, and what about this person and that person? And he starts naming names. Okay. Now kind of like what we have heard when people name locations, you know, I've been to this location and that location, East Texas to West Texas, the panhandle to the valley, right? I've, I've, I've done this. When you name names, people go, oh, I remember this story and I remember hearing about this one. I remember hearing about that one. And that lets us know that change really does need to be made, you know, in our country. And but again, he's not really talking about the actual policy, you know, that that is going on here, except as it applies to he does get to one policy point here. He talks about um, police justice. I'm the only candidate who's put forward legislation to reform the policing system to say that no matter what the color of your skin is, you're treated the same by the police. You know, Latinos are are mistreated too often, you know, by police. Yeah, it's really a good contrast between the two of these candidates here, Klobuchar and Castro. Um, that first question uh, where they pose it straight at, you know, somebody who, you know, may not have a lot to say on race. And, you know, it's almost as if the the moderators, again, are framing this in a way that makes it very difficult for the candidates to answer, um, for some candidates at least to answer. And then the moderator turns around and they hand a softball question to Castro. The question to Castro is, is what she just said good enough? Which is really, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's fair. Uh, uh, moderating right there because now that tees Castro up to just knock it out of the park and of course say that's not enough. Uh, we also need to recognize this and we need to recognize that and then he can go into you know whatever stories that he wants and it really frames him as a significantly better more credible candidate um, just because of the framing of the two questions to those two candidates right there. So, you know, it's not really that great. That being said, Klobuchar's answer wasn't even that good. Um, she, you know, really just emphasizes her life, her work, her career. And uh, w- without going into too many specifics, um, but really wants to emphasize everyone, 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 um, which is, you know, a, a, a great message to to white voters to everyone yeah everyone (laughs) white voters that you need in iowa and new hampshire um probably her base not such a great answer to you know minorities and people of color so you know kind of kind of interesting to see how they both played uh with that question there yeah she tries to spin here like you, you can hear that this is an uncomfortable question for her um you know and again, it is they know this is going to be an uncomfortable question for her. And then she tries to spin it. But her spin of it is just a little bit. It puts her a little bit too much into into the box. Um, but I 
Yeah, I think that she probably, you know, could have rehearsed a little bit better on that one. And this next question, we're going to be talking about impeachment and how Beto O'Rourke feels about Donald Trump. Congressman O'Rourke, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report outlines multiple instances of potential criminal behavior by President Trump. House Speaker Pelosi has publicly and privately resisted any move toward impeachment in the House. If the House chooses not to impeach, as president, would you do anything to address the potential crimes that were outlined in Mr. Mueller's report? Yes, and I'll tell you why. How, by the way, if, if the answer is yes. One of the most powerful pieces of art in the United States Capitol is the Trumbull painting of General George Washington resigning his commission to the Continental Congress at the height of his power, submitting to the rule of law and the will of people. That has withstood the test of time for the last 243 years. If we set another precedent now that a candidate who invited the participation of a foreign power, a president who sought to obstruct the investigation into the invasion of our democracy, if we allow him to get away with this with complete impunity, then we will have set a new standard. And that is that some people, because of the position of power and public trust that they hold, are above the law. And we cannot allow that to stand. So we must begin impeachment now so that we have the facts and the truth and we follow them as far as they go and as high up as they reach and we save this democracy. And if we've not been able to do that in this year or the year that follows and under my administration, our Department of Justice will pursue these facts and ensure that there are, account there are consequences, there is accountability mm -hmm. and there is justice. It's the only way that we save this country. Thank you, Congressman O'Rourke. Right. So this is a little clip here of, of Beto and, you know, a, a great example of going into metaphor. And, you know, if the House decides not to impeach, you know, what would you do as president? Would you, you know, decide to pursue further um, executive answer? And he says yes. And then he just goes into this <laughs> metaphor about a painting. It's withstood the test of time. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it really doesn't like. It's not the right point in the debate to be jumping into this sort of thing. You know, we're at the tail end. Uh, that might have been great at the beginning, but now people, I think, want to get it over with. And he <laughs> jumps three steps backwards into this metaphor about the painting um, that is really interesting. But, you know, appropriateness aside, it is really interesting the way that he does that as a way to, you know, illustrate, no pun intended, illustrate the way that you know president trump is acting unpresidential and so you know he's queuing up sort of the visual part of your brain so now you're envisioning this painting you know uh, 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 on the capitol and you know all the things that might you know go around that and our founding fathers and and all of that um really brings together a lot of emotions and you know historicness uh, to the framing that that he then you know serves as an antithesis to Trump, and you know it's a great way to make his point. Um, maybe not the greatest point in the debate for that. He probably had it prepared as you know a, 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 an answer to a question that may have come earlier in the debate or may have been more appropriate in a different situation. Either way, he had it rehearsed, he was ready to go, and he just went with it. Yeah, and it's it's always interesting to hear these things out of context. So we hear them when it was something rehearsed, so this was something that he went over with his campaign, and he practiced it, and they said, oh, that sounds really good. 
And you realize that as he's saying this, this isn't actually a serious answer to a question. This is something that he just had queued up that he could use to answer any question. And when you have something out of context like that, it just really illustrates the persuasiveness of it and how persuasive it actually is. That what he does is he just jumps into, again, something about a painting. What does a painting have to do with Donald Trump? Well, it does evoke back those senses of the antiquity or of the long history of the USA and all of the important values, the powerful bedrock of foundation that we are standing upon and the the tale of the history that stretches back through time that we have with us as we go through and as we make these changes in our lives and in the lives of the people in this country. So you see, I just did it there a little bit for you. <laughs> Uh, to, to just get, you know illustrate this point a little bit more. Um, all right, so in this next clip, we're going to be listening to John Delaney and Amy Klobuchar, and we're really going to hear about what ordinary Americans care about. So let's take a listen to this one. Congressman Delaney, because of the accountability issues that Congressman O'Rourke was just describing there and the real political um, landscape in which Nancy Pelosi is saying that impeachment will not be pursued in the House... It raises the prospect, and the Mueller report raises the prospect, that President Trump could be prosecuted for some of those potential crimes down the line. No U.S. president has ever been prosecuted for crimes after leaving office. Do you believe that President Trump could or should be the first? I guess there's always a first. (laughs) Should he be the first? I don't think anyone's above the law. I don't think anyone is above the law, including a president. I support Speaker Pelosi's decisions that she's making in the in the House of Representatives right now as Speaker. I think she knows more about the decision as to whether to impeach the president than any of the 2020 candidates combined. Conceded. So, On the but issue I do think I do think the, no one's above the law, and this president, who is lawless, should not be above the law. But I will tell you, Rachel, the one thing when you're out doing as much campaigning as I've done. 400 events, all 99 counties in Iowa. This is not the number one issue the American people ask us about. It's not. They want to know what we're going to do for health care, how we're going to lower pharmaceutical prices, how we're going to build infrastructure, what we're going to do to create jobs in their communities. You know, last year in our country, 80% of the money for startup businesses went to 50 counties in this country. There's over 3,000 counties in this country. That's what they care about. They care about what's going on in the public schools. They care about what's going on with jobs in their communities, with their pay, with their health care, with infrastructure. These are the issues, these kind of kitchen table pocketbook issues are actually what most Americans care about. They they never ask about the Congressman, thank you. Your time is up. They never ask about it. They want to know how we're going to solve these problems. Here's the thing. I still, Senator, we got... we let the Republicans run our elections... We got to... And if we do not do something about Russian interference in the election and we let Mitch McConnell stop all the backup paper ballots, then we're not going to get what we want to do. All right, I got to sneak in. We blew through a break, which was good news to give you more time, so I got to sneak one in now. More of this debate. It's picking up here. It continues right after this. Wow. John Delaney's big moment. And so, you know, he really gets in a long little speech here um, all about how, you know, maybe we should trust Nancy Pelosi because ordinary Americans don't care about impeachment. Um, It's really an interesting way of him to go about, you know, not enraging the, you know, leader of his party. 
Um, and at the same time, sort of making that down home pitch to regular people just trying to eat dinner at the dinner table um, and <laughs> goes on and on and on about all of these pocketbook issues that quote unquote normal people care about. Um, you know, it's an interesting way for him to make his point. Um, he certainly, it wasn't a very compelling point. He didn't really have a whole lot to say, but he was able to stretch that out into, you know, a way that sort of talked about emotions and tried to appeal to, you know, regular Americans, quote unquote. So, you know, I don't know if it was that effective, but, you know, boy, Klobuchar really comes at him right after that, uh, really emphasizing what I just said that like, no, you've got to do something Here's, you know, here are the things that I think that we should be doing um, and sort of uh, beats Delaney there on, you know, his point that, you know, we shouldn't do anything because ordinary Americans don't care. Yeah. And this is another example of analogy he goes into and it can be as simple as just a few words. These kitchen table pocketbook issues. Well, who doesn't have a pocketbook? Who doesn't have a kitchen table? Right. What is he actually saying? He's referencing what it's like in people's homes. So he brings us into the home just by saying those those couple of words. You know, what's really interesting here is the way that Delaney uses numbers. And we've talked about this before um, in which, you know, Delaney says here uh, 400 events all over the country. This is not the number one issue that Americans ask us about. And 80 percent of the money went to 50 countries. Well, if you'll go back to episode 30 that we did on the Mueller report, you'll remember that we actually broke down a CNN clip of Sarah Sanders, you know, back when she was press secretary. And she was doing this this numbers thing that the Republicans were seemingly all doing at the end of the Mueller report uh, when um, the bar letter came out. And, you know, she said, you know, after two years, twenty five million dollars wasted, twenty eight hundred subpoenas, five hundred witnesses. 30 foreign countries, 40, you know, this million of documents. And this whole thing is outrageous. And so when you stack numbers together like that, it creates this false impression that something is bigger or more legitimate than it actually might be. Just citing a number. Remember that, you know, you say there's there's lies, you know, damn lies and statistics. And so citing a number, you know, in that way it's a statistic. It's another type of lying. It makes it seem different, you know, than it actually is. All right. I think that's about all the time we've got for today. Uh, tune in in two weeks as we break down the second Democratic debate. That's a lot more fiery than this one. Uh, take a listen to how the candidates go back and forth with each other a lot more than in the first debate. We've got a lot to say on this. And if you really love this episode and you want to keep on supporting us, head on over to our Patreon page and you can support us for as little as a cup of coffee, as much as uh, our server costs to keep this show on the air. Head on over to Twitter and follow us at SubliminalPod. Go to Facebook, join in on the discussion, and be sure to send us your thoughts, feelings, opinions, and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye.